As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. I'm Nick Botsolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me on the eve of Ascension. So we have been, for the past 12-plus weeks now, slowly walking through the Gospel according to St. Luke, and this week we will continue our journey with chapter 11. So with all of that out of the way... Let's begin chapter 11 of the Gospel according to St. Luke. He was praying in a certain place, and when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not in temptation. So what we see here is that the Lord's Prayer within St. Luke's account of the Gospel is very short and very chopped up. Now, there are a lot of reasons for this. Uh, we're reading the Revised Standard Version here of the Gospels, and it's honestly not my favorite translation here. Uh, if you look in your Orthodox Study Bible, you'll see a translation of the Lord's Prayer that seems pretty familiar, one similar to the one that we read liturgically. But for sake of sitting here and going through, we're going to use the RSV. So what we see initially is Jesus is praying as he's been throughout all of Luke. Again, this has been a common motif that we've seen. Jesus goes away to pray. Jesus is constantly devoting himself to the Father, connecting with the Father, and communing with him. Uh, this is a constant motif that we've seen. And when he's done, so when he ceases, his disciples come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So they're looking to receive some of the knowledge that a typical teacher would give to his followers. John taught his disciples how they were to pray, what their prayer rule looked like, and so his disciples of Jesus are coming to him and asking the same thing. And what's interesting is the way that Jesus teaches them to pray shows us our relationship with God the Father through him, and it also reveals to us Jesus' relationship to God the Father. Because as we know, 
we refer to him as Father. So that's the very beginning here. Father, hallowed be thy name. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So the statement of Father is something that we make acknowledging God as our Father. Why? Well, we're able to do that because the Son is teaching us how to pray. And through the Son, we are communing with the Father. We're treating him as he is our Father, and that's something that's only made possible because Jesus, the Son, has been made manifest. He has revealed himself to be fully God and fully man, living a full human existence as we live. So for that reason, we too can acknowledge God as our Father. And yet we see here that holy is his name. And what we're told by that is that his name is to be hallowed. His name is to be dignified. So we're not only venerating him or acknowledging him for his status as Father, but we're acknowledging him as something holy, something different than us. And we're looking for his kingdom. So as we've been talking about with Jesus coming, what we see is the messianic age begin. The motif of this age, that is the age that's overcome by sin, has ended. And as Jesus is going from place to place, we see a revelation of the messianic age that has begun. That's why all of these radical things happen just from Jesus even coming into a town, such as demons being cast out, healings taking place. It's because the world that is a slave to that motif of this age, that is the age overcome by sin, is transfigured and transformed as Christ comes from town to town, bringing with him the messianic age. So all the people that come into contact with Christ are transfigured in this way. And what we see in verse 3 is a cry to give us this day our daily bread. So that, what is that? That's a bread of subsistence. That's a bread of sustenance. So we're not asking the Father to give us anything more than what we need here. What we're asking our Father, God, is to give us every day what we need to be able to continue this life in him, to be able to orient ourselves towards the Father. So when we hear daily bread, that's what they're talking about here. What Christ is telling us is we have to beseech our Father every day to give us the things that we need to be able to do what he's created us to do. There's a full orientation that's taking place throughout this whole prayer. And that orientation is focusing upwards. It's focusing on God who is beyond us, totally other than us, holy. And yet what we're acknowledging, as we see here in verse 3, is that if we have that continual orientation, well, we're going to receive what we need rather than what we want. And to be able to do this, as we see in verse 4, we ask God to forgive us our sins, for we, are, uh, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So what we see here is if we're constantly beseeching God to forgive us from where we miss the mark, well then we need to be able to pay that forward. We need to be able to do the same. So it's not enough to 
ask God for things constantly and just sit around and wait for him to give us what we believe we want. Rather, we're called constantly to be reorienting ourselves towards God and his will rather than our will. And if he is going to freely continue to forgive us for our missing of the mark, our sins, well then we have to do the same for others. Because if God is willing to forgive all of us for our sin, regardless of how great it is, well then we really, if you want to think about it, don't have an excuse to not forgive others for their trespasses, their sins against us. And what do we see here? We see at the very end, uh, request not to lead us into temptation. So this might confuse a lot of people. We might think, okay, well, how is an all good God leading us into temptation? Well, he himself is not leading us into temptation. Yet when we forget about God, when hardship or whatnot assails our life as it all too frequently will, well, if we forget about God in that moment, if we give in to the various temptations and things that come along in life, well, what happens? It feels as though God has abandoned us. It feels as though God is far from us. We know that's not the case conceptually, and yet what happens is when we deal with burdens that we're overwhelmed by or feel like they're too great for us to be able to bear, well, we're led into a situation that from our perspective, we are not equipped for. Yet, when we humble ourselves, when we step away from our perspective and try to orient ourselves towards God's perspective constantly or discerning what God's perspective is constantly, then we have enough separation to be able to realize, okay, I wasn't led into something that I was not equipped to be able to bear here. Rather, when you put on Christ, so when you orient yourself totally towards the will of the Lord, well, then you are able to withstand whatever temptation it is comes your way or whatever hardship it is that's coming your way. So it's not of your own accord but rather it's through this intercession, it's through this guidance, it's through this orientation that allows for us to ultimately commune with God. So moving on to verse 5, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, and do not sh The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his inopportunity, impropriety, he will raise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if he has a son, asks him for fish, and will instead give him a, scorpion, a serpent? 
Or if he asks for him an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So what we see here are three examples that Christ gives immediately, explaining our relationship to the Father and how we commune with him. So first we have this example of a friend who has friends come in the middle of the night to stay with him. And when they arrive after their long journey, he doesn't have any bread or food to give them. So what does he do? In the middle of the night, he goes to his other friend. And what we see here is the title of friend is important because it kind of shows us why this individual, over time and through persistence, will give his friend what is needed. Because if you hear this title, friend, well, it shows that there's this reciprocal nature to their relationship. There's this respect to their relationship. And so as this friend comes to his other friend and says to him, give me bread, his response is, don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are here with me in bed. So the household is closed down for the night. We're resting this isn't the time for you to come and bother me. Come tomorrow. I can't give up. I can't get up and give you anything. But we hear Jesus say in verse 8, But I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of the opportunity, he will raise, <clears throat> he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So through this continual, we'll say badgering in a sense, well, what happens? Well, the friend will go out of his way to give this person what he needs in this moment. Why? It's not because he's being annoying and sitting out there and being like, hey, come on, wake up, give me what I need. Well, that, that they wouldn't be friends after that, honestly. And if he was bothering him in this way, he would just shut him out altogether. But what this is, is an image of showing us how we are to constantly be beseeching God for what we need rather than what we want. Because what we see here in this next section, where Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. All too often we kind of interpret this as, well, if I continue to badger God for the things that I want, well, then he's going to give me what I want. If through my prayers I'm constantly saying, God, I want all of these things, well, then if I continue to focus on wanting those things hard enough and bother God over and over again for those things that I want, well, then at some point, if I do enough prayers and I spend enough time focusing on those things, well, then God's going to grant my wish. But this isn't at all what we're seeing here. Because again, we need to understand the broader context of what we've been reading throughout the entire gospel. We're not sitting here telling God our wants. Rather, we're sitting here and beseeching God to give us what we need. And the goal is for us to be able to align our will with the will of God so what we want and what we need become synonymous. So if we're constantly humbling ourselves, and we're constantly trying to discern the will of the Lord, 
Well, then what happens is eventually we'll start to see that the things that we want aren't going to be things like, oh, a new car just for the sake of vanity or a new house because the one that I live in is too small. Rather, you're going to start to see that the things that you want are the things that you need to be able to do whatever it is you were created to do. And this is a constant motif of prayer. We're constantly asking God to give us what we need to get through the day. And we're constantly beseeching him to reveal to us what it is that he wants us to do. That's how we become participants in his will. That's how we live this life centered in Christ. And yet, if we're continuing to badger God, we'll say, and treat him like he's this magical Pez dispenser, this magical uh, device that will give us what it is that we want, if we treat this like it's transactional rather than relational, well, we miss the point of prayer. Because prayer is not transactional. Prayer is not our way of getting God to move and consent to our will. Rather, prayer is our way of being able to connect with God and discern fully his will for us. So that way we can embody that will and participate in it in all aspects of our life. And why is it that we will then so freely align our will with the will of God? Well, it's because as Father, He is this ultimate benefactor. He is this ultimate example of love. Because the number one thing, or person rather, that He's given us is His Son. And it's through His Son that salvation has come into the world. It's through the Christ becoming man that we are able to know the Father, love the Father, and serve the Father. And so... If God is this ultimate example of good, of love, of joy, well, what do we see here? We see here in verse 11, Christ saying, What father among you, if his son asked for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? This just isn't what you would do. And yet we see here in verse 13, If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him? So what we see here is that even though us humans, we're fallible, we have this propensity to sin, to move towards evil, well, through this father-child relationship, what we see is it would be illogical to do harm. It would be illogical to not give the child what the child is asking for. Why, if you were given the, if you were asked for an egg, would you give him a scorpion? Why, if you were asked for something so simple for subsistence, would you then turn around and offer something that is for destruction? So the example that we see here is telling us that if fallible human beings treat those that they care for in such a way, well then, how great is the way that God, our Heavenly Father, treats us? And the gift that he's giving is simple in a sense, and yet immense beyond compare, because the gift that he's giving us, as we'll see 
as we get in the Acts and as we're going to see in 10 days from now when we celebrate Pentecost, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that is our comforter. It's the Holy Spirit that guides us in this life and helps us discern what the will of God is for us. We live a life in Christ, so we embody Christ. But it's through the works of the Holy Spirit that we are oriented down this path. Again, God is a Trinitarian God, and there's no separation within him. And yet these three distinct persons all have a role to play in how we orient towards God, and how we interact with God, and how we participate in this life in him. We have the Son, and the Son is our example. The Son shows us how we are to embody this life. The Spirit is what motivates us down this path, helping us discern, ultimately, the will of the Father. And the Father is the one who sends us love. He sends us his Son. And it's through this relationship as God as Trinity that we're ultimately led towards this eternal joy, ultimately into the bosom of the Father, into the kingdom where we are able to participate with God as one. And yet, if... God didn't love us. He wouldn't have sent us his son. And if God didn't love us, well, when we celebrate, as we're going to tomorrow, the ascension, well, he wouldn't afterwards send us his comforters. That way we could still be oriented towards this life. We could still be guided along the way because that is what the Spirit is doing within each and every one of us. When we're baptized, when we put on Christ, we are being anointed with the Spirit of God, with the Holy Spirit, that third person of the Holy Trinity. And it's through that third person that, again, we're being guided through this process. This is a manifestation of God's love for us. This is, again, God showing us that he's giving us the base necessities of what we need. And even though the Spirit can be seen as a base necessity— since the Spirit is leading us towards the Father. When we think about the love that's given to us from the Father, well, this gift of the Holy Spirit is greater than a piece of bread. It's greater than any other thing that we can think of needing in our life. Because ultimately, it's leading us towards fulfillment. So moving on to verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was dumb. When the demon had gone out, the dumb man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, while others to test him sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and the divided household falls, and if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be, they shall be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons— then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
when the strong man, fully armed, guards his own place, his goods are in peace. But when one stronger than he assails him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, in which he start trusted, and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So as we move on from the Lord's Prayer and the explanation of the Lord's Prayer and our relationship with God the Father, what we see here is another controversy narrative. So we see this controversy of Christ being conflated with Satan, Beelzebul, the, the prince of demons. And what we see is he's casting out a demon of a man who is struck dumb by this demon. This is a constant motif that we've seen because Jesus has been casting out demons throughout the entire gospel. And someone in the crowd says that he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So who is this Beelzebul? Well, as we see a little bit later, there's a conflation between Satan and Beelzebul. And for a little historical context, Beelzebul is a Canaanite god known as Beelzebul, well, rather Baal, Baal. And Beelzebul, or rather Beelzebub, as we see, is kind of a play on his name. So the play on name is denigrating him in a sense, because Beelzebub, which you typically see here, depending on what your translation is, means Lord of Flies. So what we're basically seeing is that in the statement or the identification of this name, there's mockery at play. There's mockery of this demon, because as we know in the Old Testament, the gods of the Old Testament aren't gods at all. Rather, they're demons. They're our adversaries. So we see this conflation of spirits. But what's important here is that we have a dichotomy that's played out. We're looking at the leader of the evil spirits. So the most evil spirit you can think of. And we're comparing him to Christ. And what this man in the crowd is saying is that you are casting out demons by the prince of all demons. So you're removing these evil spirits, these evil entities from people as kind of a psyop. Like we're going in and you're tricking everybody into thinking that you're actually here to liberate them when in all reality you're pulling them further and further away into the grips of demons. But this is ludicrous if we think about what we've seen so far. Because if this was some radical plan by the devil to send a messenger in to you know, conduct this psyop, to confuse the people into thinking that he's casting out demons when really he's leading them towards them, well, why would you have all of these narratives that have come time and time again where Jesus' very presence is casting out demons? And that's exactly what Jesus says in his reply. Every kingdom divided against itself will not stand. It's weighed the least. The same with a house that's divided against itself. So if you're taking the very foundation of a structure and you're causing chaos within it, you're causing turmoil within it, well, what's going to happen with more destruction, with more conflict? Well, eventually that structure is going to fall apart. So if Jesus was casting out demons by demons if he himself was a demon, well, 
this wouldn't make sense. The equation wouldn't work. And yet, what do we see? We see the people accusing him as such. They're having their hearts hardened, and that's blinding them to who Jesus truly is. They're becoming children of Satan, we'll say, in some regard, because they're becoming adversarial with God in the same way that Satan is the adversary of us. And this division is continuing. And what we see here towards the end, where in verse 20, Christ says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is the reality that we've seen time and time again. Again, we talked about this messianic kingdom motif, that in Christ... The kingdom of God has been made manifest in the world. And it's by the finger of God, by the spirit of God, that he is casting out these spirits rather than by an evil spirit itself. And the reason for this that Christ gives is in an analogy here in verse 21. When the strong man, fully armed, guards his own place, his goods are in peace. But when one stronger than he assails him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. So what we see here in this example is that Satan, the ruler of this age, if we're again thinking about that motif, is the strong man. He has bound humanity. Humanity is overcome by sin. Sin is a reality, and yet sin was not the intended reality for humanity. So we've given ourselves over to Satan in a sense. And yet, one stronger than him has come and bound him. That one is the Messiah. That's why Jesus has this authority over these unclean spirits throughout the entirety of the Gospels. He's showing his authority as he goes from place to place. And it's by his very presence, since he is the Messianic King, he is God-made man. Well, as he goes and interacts with these spirits, they're totally totally overcome by him. They don't even hold a candle to his authority. And that's what we see here. So in verse 23, when we hear, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. What we see, really what's happening there, is that he who has opposed himself to the messianic kingdom, he who stands outside of it and utterly detests it, has given themselves over to the kingdom of this age, that is, the world ruled by sin. And he who does not gather with me, that is, he who does not embrace the messianic age and live a life in it, well, they're scattered. You're fragmented. Why? Because only the only thing the demons can do is isolate us. The only authority that they have is to try and destroy. They can't create anything. And they can't even destroy by their own power. Rather, they destroy by manipulation. And it's our decisions to be able to participate in that distortion that lead towards destruction. They themselves have, been cho have chosen to isolate themselves. They have chosen to leave the kingdom of God. And so rather than building their own kingdom because they're incapable of creating. 
in a sense, they do make a kingdom. But that kingdom is isolated. That kingdom is destroyed. That kingdom is crumbled. Because all those who wind up going down that path, who are drawn there by these evil spirits, end up in the same destruction that they themselves are in. Because it's not the vengeance of God that leads us into that pit. Rather, it's our own choices out of our own free will that bar us from being able to be full participants in Christ, from being able to be full participants in the kingdom of our Heavenly Father. And as we see from these people who are accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the prince of demons, well, that starts with a hardening of heart. That starts with closing ourselves off to any reality that's outside of the one that we want to create. We're not called to build the world in our own image. Rather, we're called to reorient the world towards God's image. And so if we align ourselves with those spirits, those animating principles that divide and orient us away from God, well, then we become children of this age, an age separated from God. But it's not fully separated. The Messianic age has come. Christ is here. Christ is in our midst. And he is and ever shall be. But we can still choose to close ourselves off to reality. We can still choose through our free will to isolate rather than march on as one in Christ. And this is why discernment is so important. This is why prayer, as we talked about at the beginning of this chapter, is so important. Because it's through that process of trying to continually orient ourselves towards God that these things become clear in our life. But if we give up praying, if we go long stretches of life where we don't go to church, we don't pray, we don't read the scriptures, well, I can tell you from personal experience that you start to have that light go out in you. You start to prioritize other things and realize slowly but surely that, well, maybe that whole church thing isn't important. Maybe that whole life in Christ thing isn't important. And as you continually prioritize other things in life, will you miss all of the callings and opportunities that God is presenting in front of you every single day? Regardless of what it is, we all have a calling in this life. And that calling reveals itself to us in numerous ways. It's dynamic. It changes. Or rather, our perception of it changes. Yet all of us are called to serve in the way that Christ is serving us. All of us are orient, called to be oriented upwards towards the Father. And so these are just things that we need to be aware of. This is the reality that's in front of us. This is what we're talking about when we talk about spiritual warfare. Because if we are divided against ourselves internally, well then, we can't exist 
as ourselves. So if we are divided against Christ, well, ultimately, what happens? We can't participate in eternity within him. So moving on to verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of man, he passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. So Christ is giving another parable here. And the parable is talking about an unclean spirit that's cast out of man, that's exercised. And what happens to that spirit is when it's separated from its host, since it's a parasite, honestly, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. So the rest that the spirit had was being in this person by orienting this person towards destruction rather than allowing for him to be oriented towards God. And now that he's separated from this person, what we see is there's not that shield between him and God. The vessel that he had, in a sense, is now gone, and he's in this desolate place. And in that place, the spirit reasons to itself, I'll return to my house that is my vessel, the person that I once occupied. And so when he comes back, he finds that the house is swept and put in order. That is, this person who was once in this chaotic state that made him susceptible to all of these things torturing his soul, well, he started to put that house back together. There's order that is coming into play. But we see in verse 26, the demon, that is the unclean spirit that once occupied this person, now that he sees that the person's got their affairs in order. They've been liberated from the spirit for some time. Well, he goes and brings seven other spirits, that is many other spirits, and they are more evil than himself. And they enter and dwell there. That is, they enter and dwell in that person who has once been liberated from them. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. So what is this? Well, Jesus is warning us here, because in some way we all have our struggles. In some way, we might have these experiences where we're overcome by very tempta various temptations, where we're overcome by various demons. And yet, when we detach ourselves from them, well, then we begin this process of reorienting our life. We begin this process of doing what God has created us to do. And as we're freed from that prior state, as we're freed from this destruction, well, then what we see is that the oppressive force, we'll say, that was initially within us really had no grip over us. The struggle that we overcame seems small now because we've overcome it. But there's a warning here, and it's that even though you've overcome this struggle, the demon that was once within you will continually come back and bring more with it. So this problem will intensify. 
And if you give into it, well, what will happen? The state of that man becomes worse than the first. Why? Because the temptations have become much greater. The forces that are assailing you continue to multiply and grow. This might sound horrifying to us. We might say, okay, why would I even try to overcome any struggle in life if there's always going to be a bigger struggle? These things are going to multiply. We need to, again, understand what it means to live this life in Christ. Because if we put on Christ, we're then able to overcome these struggles. If we try to do this on our own, if we put our life in order and then we say, okay, no, now I'm good. Well, all that happens is these temptations, these destructive forces in life will continue to multiply until one day when we're weak, they overcome us. But this is the point of us having to put on Christ. This is the point of us constantly trying to center ourselves in him because he is then our defense against all of these forces that we cannot control. He's our defense against these various temptations and shortcomings that come our way. And over time, through continuing to fight off these realities, to fight off these temptations, we'll find that even though they become greater, we're also growing in strength. We're not at the same place that we were when that single demon overcame us. And even though you have a whole multitude of wicked spirits assailing you, well, you've been growing as well. And Christ will then take care of the rest. But we have a role to play in this. If we think that, well, Jesus is going to save me, and we don't want to put any work in, if we don't want to clean our own internal state, well, then we're totally missing the mark. And we won't have Christ at the center, allowing for us to be able to be protected from these spirits that are assailing us. But if we put on Christ, if we constantly strive to have him at the center of our life, if we constantly strive to embody all that he's not only told us to do, but has done in his own ministry, well, then we'll have the strength to overcome whatever it is that assails us. Then we'll have the strength to be full participants in his kingdom. So moving on to verse 27. As he said this, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that you sucked. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So this verse right here might sound familiar to us from the liturgical year, because with every feast of the Theotokos, we hear a hybrid of this verse, well, these two verses, and the verses of Mary and Martha that we saw in last week's chapter. And so what, what do we see here? Well, we see that after Jesus says all of these things, there's a woman in the crowd who cries, blesses the womb that bore you and the breasts that you gave, it gave you suck. So what this exclamation is, is an acknowledgement that Jesus is blessed. And if Jesus himself is blessed, well, the mother who bore him, the mother who nourished him, 
she must herself be blessed. And in verse 28, when we hear Jesus say, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it, oftentimes people within certain Protestant circles see this as a way of denigrating the role of the Theotokos. Well, she's not truly blessed because here Jesus says, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. But Jesus here in the statement is affirming what was said before. Because again, if we understand the totality of what we've seen in St. Luke's account of the gospel, well, Mary's already revealed herself to hear the word of God and keep it. In a sense, when the angel proclaims that she will bear a son, and she accepts that, calling herself the servant of the Lord, the slave of the Lord, well, what do we see there? We see her literally allowing for the word of God, because Christ is the word, the logos of God, to dwell within her. And all of her actions that we see are emblematic of her allowing for that word to dwell within her. She's keeping that word. She's embodying that word. Because it's not enough for us to hear. It's not enough for us to act. All of these things need to be interrelated. We need to truly take in what it is that we hear. But we need to also act upon these commands, act upon this calling. This is what we continually are talking about when we talk about our life in Christ. It's not only sitting here and talking about the Bible and pulling out a bunch of fun facts. It's a call, it's a command for each and every one of us to live this life, to minister to others, to condescend in a way that allows for us to serve daily rather than expecting to be served ourselves. And this is why what Jesus is saying here in this teaching moment that he takes is blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So we too become blessed when we hear the word of God, when we hear these things that we've been wrestling with and then bring them to the center of our being, orient ourselves around them, keep them in our heart and then live them. So moving on to verse 29. And when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the men in Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, Something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So we see as the crowd is, in, is increasing, Jesus begins to say to them that this generation, again, we've been talking about the motif of this generation and this age. So that's the generation overcome by sin. 
that's not a specific 40-year group of people. This is anyone who is living for the things of this age rather than what is being presented to us in Christ. So he says, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And we've seen these signs, or at least the seeking of these signs, from people who've continually been testing Jesus and asking for him to show them something miraculous so that they will believe. And what Jesus says here is that you're not going to get a sign other than the sign of Jonah. So if we remember all the way back to the book of Jonah, and we also know how the story of Christ plays out with his death and on the third day resurrection, well, we see that there are two things that are happening here. So the sign, first of all, is the sign that will come through Christ of the resurrection. So in the same way that Jonah was in the whale for three days, Christ will be in the grave for three days. And on the third day, he will rise in the same way that on the third day, Jonah was expelled from the whale. And the second aspect of this sign is the sign of Nineveh. So Nineveh is another one of these, archetypally speaking, also historically speaking, evil, corrupt cities. And they're so evil and they're so corrupt that when God comes to uh, Jonah and says to him, go to Nineveh and tell them that I'm about to wreak my vengeance, that you are going to be destroyed, it's time to repent. Jonah runs in the opposite direction. He's terrified to go to Nineveh. And so as he's trying to flee from this call, well, God continues to pull him further and further in the opposite direction to the point where he ends up being thrown overboard in the middle of a storm and swallowed up by a whale, by a sea creature. And when he's expelled by the sea beast, well, he's in Nineveh. He's at the place that he was supposed to be all along. And when he tells the people the prophecy that God has given to him, what do they do? He thinks that they're going to murder him and that God's going to come and reap his vengeance. And yet, in a bizarre twist, what we see is this evil people, this archetypally evil people, repents. They put on sackcloth and anoint themselves with ashes and continue this process of repenting for the evil that they've done. And that allows for them to forego destruction. And yet, what do we see? We see that this generation sees the Christ. This generation has the messianic age presenting itself right in front of them. And so the condemnation of that generation, because they know better, is going to be even greater. It's because we have this knowledge. It's because we've seen the Messianic King that we have a greater responsibility than those who had no exposure whatsoever to this reality. It's because we've gone through struggle. So when we see here in verse 31, that the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, well, there's multiple things happening here. This is, again, pointing us back to 
Chronicles Kingdoms with Solomon. But the self is symbolic of this place of struggle. So if the queen of the self has come from this place of struggle to receive wisdom, is again, wisdom and Solomon are synonymous. Well, if you have this example from the Old Testament of an individual going through struggle to receive that base layer of knowledge that is given from Solomon, the base layer of wisdom that's provided by Solomon, well, behold, something greater than Solomon's here. The Christ has truly come. If the men in Nineveh will rise in judgment with this generation, condemn it, well, why is that the case? Well, it's because they repented when they hadn't even seen the Christ. All that Jonah tells them is that they're going to be destroyed because they have done evil in the eyes of the Lord. And yet it's through those words that they begin this process of repentance. And yet Christ has come healing. Christ has come with mercy throughout his entire ministry. And due to the hardness of men's hearts, he's being utterly rejected. And now Jesus isn't going to come again in one day and murder all of the people who have wronged him and done evil to him. No, he's treating us all with forgiveness. He's continuing to offer us all an opportunity for repentance. And yet our condemnation at the end of days is that we will separate ourselves from God. We have Christ here constantly reaching out his hand to us and offering us this opportunity of a life in him. And yet, through our choices, we reject him. That's something we do constantly, especially as Christians, because we know better. We are the Jews of the first century. We are the ones who say we know God, and yet in our actions and the way that we live our lives, primarily myself, continually reject him. So this is why we're called to constantly be humble. This is why we're constantly called to strive towards the kingdom of God. So through our orientation towards him, we may have the clarity to see that he's standing right in front of us. We may have the clarity to see that we are being called to reorient our lives and repent is it's that repentance that allows for us to be able to ultimately live a life in Christ. It's that repentance that ultimately allows for us to do what we were created to do, ministering to this creation, helping those who are in need, and allowing for all to have this beautiful experience of God that we, at some point in our life, are able to experience. So moving on to verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in the cellar or under a bushel, but on a stand, for those who enter may see the light. Your eye is a lamp. The, your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is sound, your whole body is full of light. But when it is not sound, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkened. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part in darkness, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives off light 
give you light. So what we see here is a second example of Christ telling us not to hide our lamp, not to put it in a cellar or under a bushel. And if I learned anything from my history professor way back in freshman year of college, it's that if I'm mentioning something more than once, it means really pay attention. This is one of those examples where Jesus is repeating himself. He's telling us, do not hide your light. Do not put it in the cellar. Do not put it under a basket or a bushel. But where is the light supposed to go? Well, it's supposed to go on the stand. So those who enter may see the light. This light is the example of Christ. And if we have this light in us and allow for others to see that light through our example, through the way that we live our life, well then, it's serving its purpose. But if we darken ourselves, if we take within us things of darkness, if we focus on the wrong things rather than trying to live a life in Christ, well, what happens? Over time, our body itself will be full of darkness. If what we're taking in is not leading us in this proper direction, well, then we're taking in the wrong things. So we need to be careful lest the light in you be darkened. We need to be careful and constantly vigilant so that way we are receiving the proper gifts and then allowing for those to be brought outward in the way that we live our life, in the way that we interact with one another. Conversion or showing people Christ doesn't happen through us trying to win arguments. Because regardless of what we say, our actions are what actually speak towards this relationship that we have as individuals. I can turn around and tell you conceptually how you're supposed to live a life in Christ and how you're supposed to do all of these great things. But if you haven't lived that life, if you haven't walked in those steps, this is going to be a totally foreign concept to you. So it's a losing battle in a sense for us to constantly try and tell people that they're supposed to come to Christ. So rather than telling them, we're called to live that example. We're called to make his light manifest in the way that we live our lives. And if your whole body is full of light, as we see, then having no part in darkness, it will be wholly bright. As when a lamp with its rays gives you light. And for examples of people who do this, well, we see the saints. The saints are the people who have fully put on Christ. The saints are these people who continually throughout their life participated in this life in Christ. And we see through their example that others are led to him. They are lights in their actions. But that light isn't of themselves. Rather, that light is the light of Christ that is then shared with the world. This is the potent example of what we are called to do as well. We are called to be this light to a darkened world. 
And the way that we make that light manifest is through sharing Christ in our actions, through ministering to those who are in need, through lowering ourselves constantly, so that way from that humbled perspective, we can see the truth of what God is calling us to do. This is the constant discipline of a Christian. This is what we are constantly called to struggle towards. And it's through these constant actions, it's through this constant orientation towards God that we are able to call him our Father. Because he then shares his love with us, which he offers to us unconditionally. But rather, if we continue to orient ourselves towards him, then we make ourselves capable of being able to participate in that love and share it with others. Because it's not enough for us to take it and hide it in the cellar or under a basket. Rather, we need to be able to share it with those who are living in darkness. So moving on to verse 37. While he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of extortion and wickedness. You fools, do not did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give for alms those things you are, which are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and salutations in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like graves which are not seen, and men walk over them without knowing it. So we see here in verse 37 that while he was speaking, the Pharisees ask, a Pharisee comes and asks him to dine with him. So again, we see this invitation from one of the ruling class, from one of the Pharisees, for Jesus to enter into his home. And when Jesus sits at the table, he doesn't wash his hands. And the Pharisee is astonished at this, because he sees that he doesn't first prescribe, ascribe rather, to the law. He doesn't do what, from the Pharisee's perspective, he's supposed to do. And Jesus here, without the Pharisee saying anything, just begins to yell at him in his house. <laughs> the first thing that Jesus says here, because again, the Pharisee hasn't expressed this verbally. The Pharisee has this written on his heart, the skepticism, this judgment of Jesus. And so in response to reading this man's heart, Jesus says, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside is full of extortion and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? So what Jesus is saying is that there is more to life than looking at it from one perspective. Yes, we can cleanse the outside of the cup or the dish, 
But if we neglect the inside, which is full of extortion and wickedness, well, then we've missed the whole. Yeah, there's a beautiful veneer that we see on this cup or on this dish. Externally, it looks pure, it looks clean. And yet internally, what do you see? You see nothing but darkness. You fools, we hear. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? And this is our clue that Jesus is talking about human beings and not cutlery. If we are the ones who put on this external persona, that we are pious or we are clean, and yet inside we're full of judgment, inside we're full of resentment and hatred towards others, well then, we are fools because we're missing the whole of who we are. This is not a condemnation of the Jews or of the leaders of that day. Rather, this is a proclamation to us Christians sitting here today. As we mentioned earlier, we know better. As we mentioned earlier, we participate in this life in Christ. And yet, if we're focusing constantly on the externals, on the way that we present ourselves, on the way that other people are perceiving us, well then, we're neglecting what's going on internally. Well then, we're missing the whole of who we are. We're missing what we're called to do. And this is why we see in verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So tithing within the Old Testament means that you give 10% of all of your subsistence, of all of your wealth. And the example that Jesus is giving here is that the Pharisees, these people who are scribing by the law, will even go into their little herb garden that they have because they need to ascribe to this law so radically that they go through this small garden that they'll have and offer up that 10%. And yet, what does Jesus say? Well, you're neglecting something even greater. You're neglecting what you're doing internally. You're neglecting your actions that are supposed to be even greater. Why? Because you were so fixated on ascribing to this law. Because you were so fixated on an aspect of life, you missed the forest from the tree that you were staring at. And we see again in verse 43, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and the salutations in the marketplaces. We see here that the love that they have is rather for the way that other people are treating them instead of the way that God is treating each and every one of us. They prefer their status, they prefer the salutations from people over condescending, over lowering themselves for the other. 
But we see finally in verse 44, Woe to you, for you are like graves which are not seen, and men walk over them without knowing it. So what this is saying is that if we understand, again, the purity rituals of the Old Testament, coming in contact with graves, that defiles you, that makes you ritually unclean. And that's why it's so important to clearly mark graveyards, because if all of these graves are unmarked, well, what's happening is you run the risk of accidentally becoming unclean. And so the Pharisees here in this context are being referred to as unmarked graves. Why? Because they're presenting themselves as this clean, green field. Externally, they're perceived as being just. And yet, internally, what's happening? They're becoming a trap for others. They're ensnaring them. Their role is to lead others towards the Father. Their role is to lead others towards God. And yet, their inward part does not match what they're showing to the world externally. So moving on finally to verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying this, you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom you your fathers killed. So you are witnesses in consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundations of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it shall be required from this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the keys of knowledge and did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying him wait for him to catch at something he might say. So what we see here is after Jesus proclaimed these woes to the Pharisees, one of the lawyers as one of the teachers of the law says, Master, by saying these things, you reproach us also. So Jesus hasn't called out the lawyers. He hasn't called out the teachers yet. And yet this lawyer, this teacher, says, well, Lord, by all the things that you've said about the Pharisees, about the scribes, well, you're saying these things about me too, aren't you? And so Jesus says, yes, woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You make the struggle for people too great. You hold this weight above their head rather than condescending and meeting them where they're at. And by doing so, by holding to the letter of the law and neglecting the spirit of the law, this 
spirit of law that you yourself have no concept of because you can't even hold to the letter of the law yourself. That's what we see here with burdens that one of your fingers hasn't even touched. Well, by doing so, you are cutting the people off from God that you are responsible for leading towards him. And we see in verse 47, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. We're all part of this generation of sinners. We're all part of this generation of humanity that's missed the mark. And yet, when we continue to be participants in that sin, when we continue to allow for that sin to live on through our actions, well, what do we do? Well, we align ourselves with those who killed the prophets. We align ourselves with those who did all of these acts of evil throughout history. We may again put this veneer out here. We may build the tombs from the prophets and say, oh, if we were only there back in that day, we would not have killed the martyrs. We would not have been the ones who crucified Christ ultimately. But the reality is that the mob was what was ruling. The people gave themselves over to the spirit of the age rather than allowing for them as individuals to be participants in the spirit of God. And what's the result? Well, the result is death. The result is destruction. We're called to something higher. We're called to give this grace of God to a darkened world, to let his light so shine as we were just talking about in the prior section. And yet, what happens? Well, we see this persecution. We see this resentment. We see the center of the being not oriented around the light of God, but rather defilement and darkness. And that leads to the blood of the prophets being shed. And yet, what does Jesus say here? Well, the blood of all of these prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. So when we conduct these acts of murder, when we conduct these acts of deviation from God, what we're doing is falling in line with these great murderers. We're becoming like Cain, who out of resentment for the gifts that Abel was given, killed his very own brother. And this is why we see from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it shall be required of this generation. So from the blood of the first human being who was killed to the blood of Zechariah, who we understand as being St. John the Forerunner's father, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, Yes, I tell you, it shall be required of this generation. We can't continue to bring evil into the world. We can't continue to orient ourselves towards evil. Because when we do so, all that happens is further destruction enters into the world. 
when it comes to sin, the buck stops with each and every one of us. But when we choose to be participants in sin, well, whether we're literally murdering the prophets or not, but what's happening is we're allowing for that same spirit to be manifest through our actions. And we see in verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So when we act in these evil ways, when we deviate from God and continue to bring more and more sin into the world, well, ultimately, what are we doing? Well, if we as Christians are meant to share God and his love with the world, and yet we live in a totally other way, well, we may even be taking that key of knowledge away from those who have not yet met God. And that's not only from laying up heavy burdens that are too great for them to bear, but that's through us taking on this title of Christian and then showing people that's something that's totally in our actions antithetical to what we are called to be as Christians. I am the first among hypocrites here because all too often in my life, I miss the mark. I think because, okay, I went to seminary and I study these things that, oh, I maybe have a clarity of knowledge that other people don't have. But time and time again, I've seen that that's absolutely foreign to the truth. In fact, the people who think they have the best understanding, myself first among them of the scriptures, are typically the people who are most blind is when you're so focused on an aspect of our faith, all too often you miss the forest from the trees. When you spend all of your time studying one topic and focusing on it and fixating on it, well, the temptation is there for you to miss the whole. And our faith is very dynamic because our faith is a life. It's a life in a person. And if we think about how persons are, well, we're complicated. You can't just sit down and look at an individual and then put that individual in a box. Because eventually you're going to keep finding categories of that individual that don't mesh with the initial category that you put them in. It's the same way with our life in Christ. If we try to put Christ in a box, well, we're just continuing to fail time and time again. So when we focus on an aspect of our faith and we miss the whole, well, all that we're doing is not only hindering ourselves, but we begin to hinder others. When we cut ourselves off at the past and yet claim to be Christians, and in our example, we live a life that is totally unchristian, well, we run the risk not only of condemning ourselves, but of cutting other people off from being able to experience the love of God. This is something that we need to take very seriously in our life because it's through our example that we are leading people towards Christ. It's not through our words because our words, honestly, at the end of the day, mean nothing if our actions do not line up with them. 
I can sit here again sermonizing and rambling about the Gospels time and time again, but if I leave here and don't do any of the things that we've been talking about, well then, I am the chief of the hypocrites. I am the worst of the worst in that regard. Because I claim here to have this knowledge of what it takes to live this life in Christ. I can sit here and pull through the scriptures and say, well, hypothetically speaking, this is what Jesus is calling us to do. But then when the opportunity presents itself in front of me, if I choose to reject that opportunity to serve, well, then I've totally missed the mark. We have a responsibility, each and every one of us as Christians, because we don't have a faith that's strictly intellectual. We don't have a faith that we're told to go and debate about over and over again in the world. Rather, we have a faith that we're called to act upon. And if we do not want to ally, ally ourselves with those who are opposed to Christ, well, then our actions need to match his actions. Because we see at the very end of this whole chapter that after Jesus says all of these things, well, the Pharisees begin to press him hard and they attempt to provoke him to speak many things so that way they can lay in wait searching for something that he might say so they can basically lay a trap for him. It's through that hardening of their heart that they've totally closed themselves off now to allowing for the truth of Christ to be made manifest in their life. Again, like I mentioned earlier, it's easy for us to say, oh, well, look at those first century Jews. Like, you see how they're rejecting Jesus? They should have known better. Oh, thank God that they're condemned now. These thoughts are intrusive. These thoughts creep into us. But whenever we're seeing these situations, we're told that we're supposed to put ourselves in that place because we are the ones who know better. We are the ones who have experienced Christ. So if our instinct, as mine time and time again has been, to say, oh, thank God I'm not that guy. Thank God I'm not that sinner. Well, we need to take a step back from that because chances are, if your instinct is to say, oh, look at what that person's doing. Thank God I'm not doing that. At some base level, you're probably doing something worse. Or at least I know from my own experience in life that that's typically the case. We're called to set the bar high. We're called to strive towards the kingdom of God continually. And it's through this process of continually repenting, continually humbling ourselves, and orienting ourselves towards the kingdom that we become worthy of being able to call God our Father. But if we don't constantly strive towards that kingdom, if we don't constantly try to define and discern what it is that God is calling each and every one of us to do in the life that we live, well, then we fall short of that gift that's being offered to us whether we want it or not. And rather than being able to accept that gift as eternal joy, as we've mentioned before, that gift is then experienced as condemnation. Not because God is vengefully trying to smite us for the things that we've done, but rather it's because we are cutting ourselves off 
by being participants in evil from being able to be full participants in good. So it's my prayer that we allow for the light of Christ to dwell within us so that way we may be lights to the world. And that's something that's very practical. That's something that we achieve every second of every day through little steps. But it's through those little steps of orienting ourselves towards the will of God that over time, as we look back at the whole narrative of our life, we realize led us further and further down that path, that led us further and further into the embrace of God. And as we continue to put on Christ, we find that doing what is right or doing what we are called to do becomes easier in a sense because it becomes habitual. It becomes a part of who we are. So let's strive towards this life in Christ. Let's constantly ask God to reveal to us the things that he has created us to do every second of every day. So that way we can truly become worthy of calling ourselves Christians. So that our actions match the words that we're saying. Because if our actions do not match what it is that we're saying, well then we are looking at the external and missing the whole, missing the internal. Because it's not saying that the external is not important. The external is a part of who we are. But if we focus on the internal or the external over the other, and we don't look at the whole of the picture, well then we can very easily fall into the various traps that the evil ones have set for us. So let's strive constantly to discern what it is that God is calling us to do. Let's hold that discipline in our life so that way as we pray and as we commune with God, we may be able to discern who it is that he wants us to be and where it is that he's putting us. So thank you all for listening to this session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study. Make his path straight. Until next time, I'll talk to you later. I pray you all have a blessed feast of the Ascension. Thank you all for listening to this session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into, to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m. and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner 
Give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight. Amen.